Genesis 4. It's our sermon text. Genesis 4, we're reading the whole chapter. This is God's very word. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now, you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Arad, and Arad begot Mahujael, and Mahujael begot Methushael, and Methushael begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, And the name of the second was Zilha. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jabal. He was the father of all those who play the harp and flute. And as for Zilla, she also bore Tubalcane, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubalcane was Nema. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilla, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain should be a, shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and named him Seth. For God, who has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. 
Our New Testament passage here is Hebrews 11, 1-4. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith... Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead, still speaks. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, infallible word. Let's ask his blessing on us now. Gracious God, bless your word to us, we ask. Instruct our hearts according to your word. Lord, we would not be wise in our own eyes. We are simple-minded. We need wisdom. We pray that you would give it. We need faith. We pray that you would provide it. We need our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd feed us with him again. It's for his sake we ask it. Amen. One of the great underdog stories in sports, there's so many of them, but one of, one of the great underdog stories in sports is of the American boxer James J. Braddock. Maybe you've seen the movie Cinderella Man that came out, I don't know, a decade or more ago now. But it tells his story. In the story, Braddock is this boxer who had a successful run of it uh, before he injured his hand, his good hand, his, his, uh, his right hand. And uh, he goes to work on the docks in New York City. This is during the Great Depression. And, and after a while, uh, he, he comes to a really low point, and he and his family are, are broke. They've got nothing. Uh, uh, but he gets a lucky break, and, and almost just by happenstance, he makes it back into the boxing ring, and he starts to win again. And he starts to earn some money for his family and provide for them again. Uh, and he does so well that he actually keeps winning and winning and actually ends up in the world championship heavyweight competition. But he's facing someone who's a lot younger, a lot bigger, uh, and, and, and more brutal. Someone who's, who, who is, uh, has put men in comas you know, and, and actually killed people before uh, uh, from, from facing him. Max Bear is the guy's name. And, and the odds on this fight between Braddock and Bear are favoring Bear 10 to 1. No chance that Braddock's going to win, of course. Spoiler, if you haven't seen the movie. He wins, right? Against all odds, he ends up winning. Genesis 4 is a very similar kind of a story. There's a clear favorite from the world's point of view. There's a clear favorite, there's a clear underdog. Right? Uh, uh, it's the beginning of this story here in Genesis 4 between this, this, this war that's, that's, that's going to go on through all history, between the seed of the woman on one hand, the seed of the promise of Genesis 3.15, God says to Eve, uh, uh, there will be a seed from you, the woman, who will crush the serpent's head. And uh, Genesis 4 is giving us an account of, of this war, how it begins between the seed of the woman on one hand and the seed of the serpent, the sinful line on the other hand. And if we read Genesis 4, it doesn't look good, does it? God promised in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. But Genesis 4, it looks all backwards. 
The seed of the serpent seems to be winning. Sin seems to be winning. It doesn't look fair. It looks like a completely one-sided fight, doesn't it, in Genesis 4? The seed of promise looks like it's getting knocked out in the first round. We're only in chapter 4 of Scripture. And it seems like the story's over. Now, this would have resonated with the Israelites as they read this account, wouldn't it? You know, the Israelites throughout their history, whatever time it was that, that they would have been reading this account all the way through their history, it would have resonated with them. Right, this is, these, are, these are the books of Moses. We believe Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote them. He's writing this for the people of Israel. They're coming out of Egypt. Right, and whoever would have thought that God would save a nation like Israel out of Egypt, right? It looked like a one-sided contest. Enslaved nation of, of Israel under this mighty uh, nation of Egypt. But this is the whole story of, of uh, Israel's history in the Bible. All the way through, it seems like they're the underdog. They're the little guy. They're almost wiped out. They're almost, uh, they're almost defeated and, and completely crushed. And it's something that we're probably familiar with, too, and that resonates with us, right? Um, we look around us, and it looks like the church doesn't stand much of a chance against, you know, against, against the world, against the flesh, against the devil, against the culture. We don't have the influence in education or entertainment or, or politics, right? And it seems like it's just diminishing. We have God's Word. It, 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 it will prevail, right? Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I will build my church. But we look around and it looks like People are compromising the faith and people are giving up the faith. What do we do, brothers and sisters, when we look around us and we see the people of God looking small and, and, and about to be knocked over and, and, and out cold? Then it looks like God's promises aren't true. What, what do we do when we see that in the culture, the church around us, right? And what do we do when we see that in our own homes, our own, our own hearts as well? Our faith feels feeble. And the enemy looks so strong. Go to Genesis chapter 4. All right, this is an old story. There's a lot of history here, isn't it? This conflict that we are engaged into. And if we're going to know what to do, we've got to know our history. And Genesis 4 is a good place to go. Genesis 4 reminds us that our captain, our general in this conflict, has seen all this before. He's been here before. This is not a surprise to him. It's all under his control. And the lesson we learn in Genesis 4 is that no matter what the opposition is, God will preserve his church until Christ wins the final victory. That's the big, that's the big idea of Genesis 4. No matter what the opposition, God will preserve his church until Christ wins the final victory. Let's dive in. Chapter 4 starts... Right where chapter 3 left off, Adam and Eve, they've just been exiled from the garden. That promise is still ringing in their ears of a seed from the woman. And Genesis 4 picks right up with that, that this, uh, there, there's a son born. Eve has a son, a firstborn son. She names him Cain. She recognizes he's from the Lord's hand, and she has high hopes for him. She says, I have acquired a man from the Lord. That's her commentary when her baby boy is born. I have, a, I have gotten a man from the Lord. She's looking at this baby boy who's just been born as, as the Savior, as the seed who's come to crush the serpent. That's her hope, I think. This is the one who's going to succeed where Adam failed. 
She has a second son, Abel. The boys grow up. Abel becomes a shepherd. Cain becomes a farmer. So far, the family is growing. Everything seems good. Everything seems to be going right and well. God is being gracious to them. They're hoping in the promise. They're they're living by faith in, in, in the promise of God. But it doesn't last long. Just a few verses in, and we see that the effects of Adam's fall into sin run deep. Verse 3, we're told, Cain brings an offering. This son of the woman, this son of promise perhaps, he brings an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. You might think, okay, it looks okay so far. What's, what's, what's wrong with that? He's bringing an offering to the Lord. That's a good thing, isn't it? But something is conspicuously absent with his offering. Um, an Israelite audience familiar with God's law would, would, would notice this right away. God requires not just fruits, but the first fruits. Right? He doesn't require just any old offering that you feel like giving him. Right? Your, 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 your hand-me-downs. He wants the best, the first fruits. That's what he requires. Cain doesn't do that. He, he doesn't do that for the Lord. He, he brings him second-rate stuff, afterthought stuff. Not the first fruits of his harvest. He's offering lip service to God. But his heart is not in it. His heart is not worshiping the Lord. This is a self-serving offering. Cain's uh, Cain's not worshiping the Lord here. He's trying to manipulate him. He's trying to get something from him. He's not trying to offer anything out of thanksgiving to him. He's showing that God is is not to him a covenant Lord who demands a heart-level loyalty and your very best, but more of a vending machine. You put this in, I'll give this out. He shows us here, Cain, Cain does in his offering, that his heart is a heart where the seeds of sin have been planted and taken deep root. Then we see Abel's offering. Abel is... The younger brother, of course, but he, as so often happens in Scripture, seems to be the brother who, uh, who, who does what the older brother should have done. He comes and he brings the Lord the very best. Verse 4 tells us he brings the firstborn from his flock. He brings the fat portion, the very best he's giving to the Lord. So here's, here's a ray of hope, right? Here, 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 perhaps, is the seed of the woman flourishing, the seed of the promise, right? We see sin at work in Cain's heart, but we see grace at work and faith in Abel's heart. He's bringing this offering to the Lord. Hebrews 11.4 tells us that he is acting in faith. He's trusting God's promise, and he's counted righteous because of it. So we see here, on the one hand, the seed of the serpent in Cain, the seed of the promise in Abel. But even as we see this godly line in Abel and this sign, the sign of hope here uh, of, of uh, God's grace at work in Abel, the, 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 the story brings us right back to Cain. The story isn't so much about Abel's faith as it is about Cain's, Cain's fall. Cain sees what's going on. He sees that the Lord sees his brother's offering and receives that offering after he rejected his offering. And Cain hates it. He's consumed by this. What does he hate? Is he just jealous of his brother? Or perhaps there's jealousy of his brother here. Probably there is. Perhaps there's hatred for his brother. But I think much more it's that he's hating the Lord. That that he is 
he is furious with God. In Cain's mind, if he brought an offering to God, God owes him. He's operating on a works principle. He doesn't understand God's graciousness at all. He says, if I do this for the Lord, he owes me. He says, Lord, you, 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 didn't, you didn't uphold your end of the bargain. So he's responding in hatred towards the Lord. And by extension, the Lord's favored one, his brother Abel. So he starts plotting murder against his brother because of his hatred for him and especially the Lord. The Lord is gracious to Cain. He comes to him. He warns him. He says, Cain, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're tempted to do. He warns him, sin is crouching at your door. This is the first time in Scripture, by the way, the word sin is used. But he says, sin is, is crouching at your door. God pictures sin as this wild beast, this ferocious beast just outside Cain's door, ready to pounce on his prey. God warns him, sin is going to try to destroy you. It's going to master you. You must master it. God's warning to Cain here about sin in this way is a warning to us also, isn't it? Sin threatens all of us. In a sense, for all of us, sin crouches at the door like a lion ready to pounce. We've got to be on guard against that. We've got to be ready to stand dressed in the full armor of God to stand against it. We need to be diligent in our fight against sin. We get so lazy in fighting sin. The Puritan John Owen wrote a lot about this, and he's got some excellent quotes. Here's, here's one. He says, Let no man think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. He who has once smitten a serpent, if he follow not on his blow until it be slain, may repent he ever began the quarrel. And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to the death, Owen oh, says, if you just give one little soft blow against the serpent of sin, you're going to regret it. It's going to attack you. So keep on at it. Be diligent in it. Be, 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 be steadfast in fighting sin. That's God's warning to Cain, as well as us. But Cain, what does he do? He ignores the warning, goes to his brother, talks to him, has him come out to the field with him. Let's go out to the field, out where no one will see, where there be no witnesses, uh, where, where, where no one can protect him from Cain. And he murders him. And the text underlines for us the, the horror of this, that he murdered his own brother. The, 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 the chapter here refers to um, Abel as Cain's brother seven times. Right, driving this point home. You, Cain, are murdering your own brother, this one that you should have protected and loved and, and helped and encouraged, who should have been side by side with you in the good fight of the faith against the serpent, you've crushed him. You've killed him. And what, what Cain has done in this moment, he, he, he has, he has right, sins devoured him, sins conquered him. He is now the serpent. Basically, he's acting on behalf of Satan himself. And he's just crushed the seed of the woman. God comes in judgment, interrogates Cain, much like he did Adam in the garden. 
He says, where is Abel, your brother? He knows the answer. He wants Cain to confess. But Cain just outright lies to him. Bold-faced lie. He rejects his responsibility for his brother. He claims it's not his job to keep his brother, even though it is. God knows what what Cain has done, though, and he he sees, he hears Abel's he hears Abel's blood crying out from the ground, as it were, and he, he sees that Cain is guilty, so he brings a curse on Cain. It's a it's a poetic justice that he puts on Cain. Uh, he said, Cain, your the, the earth soaked up your brother's blood. Now the earth will no longer provide for you. It drank up the blood that you spilled from your brother's hand. It's no longer going to give you what you need for life. You'll no longer be able to farm the earth, to till the earth, and have it be fruitful. It's interesting here that even as Cain's sin built on his father Adam's sin, so God's curse on Cain builds on the curse on his father Adam. Right? The curse on Adam, in sweat you shall toil to bring forth fruit from the ground. But now, Cain, sweat all you like. There's no fruit coming from the ground for you. And then God, uh, God condemns him to wander. Cain pleads for mercy. The Lord shows him common grace. He protects his life. Cain deserves to die, but the Lord preserves his life. Then, verse 16, we read these words. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Those are dark words, uh, foreboding words. He's moving farther and further from Eden. We read throughout uh, Genesis, moving east is always a bad sign. Going east of Eden, farther from Eden, farther from God's presence, farther from the promise, farther from the hope of the gospel. He's moving away from the Lord. He's done. Cain is done with the Lord. He's leaving. He goes far away from the promise. It's a dark moment in the story, isn't it? Right, this, this one who was, who was the one that Adam and Eve perhaps were hoping and to be the Messiah has actually become a servant of the serpent who crushed the seed of the woman. And you can imagine them wondering, where is God's promise? Where is God's promise now? All, look every which way. All we see is darkness, defeat, death, and sin running rampant. But it gets worse as we go on. The seed of sin has taken root and sprouted and it's bearing fruit in Cain, but now we're going to see it spread even further. That, that, that as Cain goes on and, and, and has a family and has children and has grandchildren and their children, that this sin is just going to grow and increase all the more. Verse 17 tells us Cain lives in rebellion against the Lord. He he, uh, against the Lord, he, he, uh, he, he, he tries to build this city, establish his own line, his own kingdom, apart from the Lord, without the Lord. And then, starting in verse 18, we get a record of his descendants uh, down seven generations from Adam to uh, Cain's descendant, Lamech. Seven, of course, the number of completion. were seven descendants on from Adam's sin. And by this point... Uh, by this point, sin has become complete in his descendants. We see Lamech there rebels against the very order of creation. He takes not one wife, 
as God so clearly spells out in, in the creation account, but he takes two wives in rebellion against the Lord. Uh, we, we, see, um, we see that Lamech has children. These children are successful in many ways, right? In farming, in, in, in music, in, in working with metal. Right? God is giving them common grace, but they're abusing it and they're trying to establish their independence from him. They've become, they've become they're, they're using these things not to glorify and enjoy God, but to be their own gods, to be their own masters, living apart from Him and His wisdom, saying, we can manage this ourselves. We don't need the Lord. We don't need the promise. And then we get this song that Lamech sings to his wives. I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. He's glorying in the violence that he does. He's, he's glorying in how much he overreacts to an insult and how much he hurts other people, how much he uh, is uh, he's celebrating murder here. He's boasting in his, in his vengeance that he takes here. So we see, right, sin begets sin, begets sin, begets sin. And it grows and it increases exponentially through the whole human race. That's what we're getting this picture of, that gone is the innocence and the bliss of Eden. It's been replaced by brutality and violence and pride and murder and misery. And where in all this is the seed of the woman? It's a story we see throughout Scripture, isn't it? Esau tries to kill his brother. Sons of Jacob turn on the son of promise, Joseph, and try to kill him. The line of the seed of the serpent and sin is constantly trying to crush and stamp out the seed of promise. We see it with the prophets. We see it with the exile of Babylon and Assyria. We see it with John the Baptist beheaded. We see it with Jesus Christ himself being persecuted and crucified. We see it with Jesus' disciples, Stephen stoned and Paul beheaded and Peter crucified upside down. Right, and it goes on. You can trace the line of the seed of the serpent doing everything it can to live in rebellion against God and to crush and, and destroy the godly line. It all can be traced back to Cain. Shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? Uh, Jesus um, tells his disciples about this. John, in his epistle, writes, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you, echoing the thoughts of Jesus from the upper room at the end of John's Gospel. The church... And the line of promise looks like a puny and fragile thing, always on the verge of extinction. And yet, as dark as it gets here, we see hope as the chapter ends. Sometimes we can get caught up in this and we can sound like Elijah in 1 Kings 19 complaining to the Lord, right? Lord, I alone am left to serve you and be faithful to you. The Lord says, I have 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. You say, I am in control of this, Elijah. He, he, he always makes sure, doesn't he, that he's preserving his people, that he's preserving his promise, that he's faithful to what he said he'd do. And even as Genesis 4 turns from right, the, the bliss of Eden, the innocence there, 
to the to the depravity of the human race growing exponentially, even as it's such a dark, dismal chapter, it is filled at the end with a glimmer of hope, shot through with, with light. At the end of the chapter, Genesis 4, verses 25 to 26, we see the sovereign grace of God breaking through like a, like a, like a ray of light breaking through a, like an overcast sky. Verses 25 to 26, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born. He named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. We, so the, the, the chapter ends with this hope that another child, a son is born, a son is given. The seed of the woman goes on. The seed of God's promise continues. And then this son has a son. And in this line now, by the grace of God, instead of sin multiplying and bearing fruit, there's faith. People are calling on the name of the Lord and serving Him and loving Him and being faithful to Him. The grace of God, despite all this darkness and sin and death and misery, the grace of God is upholding His promise and upholding His people through faith in that promise. And, 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 and it's a reminder to them that the promise He made of a son to save them, is going to come finally true. That son, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. The son that Cain should have been, right? Where Cain failed to master temptation and instead was, was slaughtered by it. Our Lord Jesus Christ, tempted over and over and over, conquers temptation, defeats it. Jesus is the better able, isn't he? Right? Abel offers an acceptable sacrifice to God. Jesus offers himself as an acceptable sacrifice to God. But as we, we read in, in Hebrews that Abel's blood cries out from the ground in condemnation against Cain. But, but, but Jesus' blood cries out, forgive him. Blood spilled not in, uh, not, 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 uh, not, uh, in, in condemnation for us, but in forgiveness for us. Jesus is the greater Seth. Right, he, he is the one who, who right, Seth is, is sort of like a resurrected Abel in a sense in, in the Genesis 4 story. And Jesus is the one who comes uh, in, in new life, raised from the dead, and, and, and through him people begin calling on the name of the Lord and they're saved. Jesus is the one who crushes the serpent's head. Even though he looked like the serpent had won, he crushed the serpent's head as he rose from the dead in victory. And that's how the chapter ends, with this glorious hope held out to us. What do we do with this? Well, we, we hold on to that hope, brothers and sisters. We've seen Christ win the victory. The war is won. It's not done, but it's won. And the, the final victory is coming. And, and, if, and if our Lord was so faithful to His promise and His people that over all those generations, all those years, from Adam all the way to Christ if He preserved His remnant faithful through that and brought them salvation in Christ, will He not fulfill and complete what He started in Christ? Christ inaugurated the kingdom. Will He not consummate the kingdom? See, yes, we can look around us and we can say, well, the world is so strong and we are so weak and the forces that face us are going to overwhelm us. That... Um, you know, we, we worry about, about the church's future, about our family's future, about our children's and grandchildren's future. What kind of world are we coming to? 
the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Christ. Trust Him. Trust His promise. Let's pray. Our Lord God, thank You for Your faithfulness to Your promise and Your Word. We thank You for Your faithfulness to us. We have not been faithful, but Lord God, You are so faithful. We thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior who has come, who has crushed the serpent's head. Lord, all our hope is in Him, not in, not in ourselves. In ourselves, we know our place. It's not in the line of promise, but in the sinful seed. So we thank You that You've given us new life in Christ, a place in Your covenant family by Your grace in Christ. We pray that we would hold fast to Your promises, knowing that every one of them is yes and amen in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our final hymn is number 460, Amazing Grace. Let's stand and sing together. Number 460. Thousand years, bright shining.
Brothers and sisters, look up and hear God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance.